Hey, Tim, question for you. Yep. You're going on vacation. You have the chance to stay at a Marriott hotel in Florida or go to an ice hotel in Quebec. A, first off, which is going to be the more memorable one? Oh, the ice hotel in in Quebec would absolutely be more memorable. Okay. B, which which would be the more pleasant experience? I'm pretty sure the more pleasant experience would be Florida. Okay. All right. That's how I would take it. So which would you choose? I'd probably choose Florida. Okay. So that's interesting because the the author that we interviewed today, Paul Bloom, did this actual research. And what he found was that people, even though they said, yes, Florida would be more pleasant, more of them picked going to the Ice Hotel in Quebec. Wow. And so this idea that, yeah, Florida, it's warm, there's pool or beach right there, it's going to be nice and pleasant. But Quebec, it might be, it's going to be cold, you're sleeping on ice. I mean, my gosh, it's in the middle of this ice hotel. It might be a little bit miserable, but it's a memorable experience. And from my life experience, my overall life satisfaction, two years from now, will I remember that Marriott Hotel in Florida? And will will I talk about it with my friends and neighbors? Yeah. Or will I be talking about my time in the Ice Hotel in Quebec? That's a great question. That, and that's a great point because it's kind of like, it, it's kind of like the, the pain that we know that we're going to go through in writing the book, right? Our, in fact, our guest um, wrote his book and he said it was, there was a lot of pain involved in writing it, but he did it for the life experience so that he could get the book published, right? Yeah. So it's important to try to find these places that, that Paul calls benign masochism. Right. Oh, what's benign masochism? Well, it's when you're intentional about taking on some misery, but not too much that it will seriously harm you. Okay. So, for instance, you know, an ice hotel in Quebec kind of <laughs> might be a little bit miserable, right? <laughs> it might be, but it's not going to be so much that it harms you. And, okay. And so, but think about this, and I think I'm sure many of our listeners have had experiences where they put a lot of effort into something, um, like months of training that goes into running a marathon for the first time. It can be really difficult and even painful, but it can also be very, very rewarding when you actually get to the day of the marathon. Yeah. And, you know, by the way, it can be really rewarding whether you finish the marathon or not. Mm, You know that? You know that from personal experience? I I do. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. All right. I won't go. We won't go there. And our guest in this episode, Paul Bloom, is a psychological professor at the University of Toronto and whose new book, The Sweet Spot, emerged as a surprisingly cool book for us last year. God, isn't that the truth? Uh, The Sweet Spot reminds us that a life of pleasure is really not just the only path or maybe even the best path to happiness. In fact, we actually need some suffering in order to really enjoy the pleasures that we have. He even shows that we can find pleasure in the pain and suffering that we endure. Now, Paul very clearly differentiates between unchosen suffering, like tree falling on your house, for instance, or, and chosen suffering, which might be like the training for your first marathon or s- staying at the ice hotel. And he reminds us how very important it is for us to seek diversity and variety in our life experiences. You ask people what emotions they want to experience, and they don't just say only the good ones. They recognize that a fulfilling life involves some experience of frustration, maybe of sadness, anger, disappointment. If you don't have that, 
you're missing out. I think this is a conversation that will get listeners thinking about how much pleasure you actually want in your life. And with that, welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. And right now, we hope you sit back with a refreshing pour of the sweet spot and enjoy our conversation with Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks for having me here. It's a, absolutely a delight to have you. And we want to start with a speed round. So first up, Keurig coffee or Nespresso? That is the easiest question I've ever had in my life. I hate Keurig coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and I absolutely love Nespresso. Every morning I have a, a this big Nespresso machine. And I think it's, it's indistinguishable from the best thing you get from a barista. So definitely Nespresso. I think we had some wow. research into that. So maybe that was that was our Mary <laughs> Mary coming in with us, some fantastic insights there. So, yes. okay, Paul, dinner with your favorite athlete or favorite musician? Oh, um, maybe favorite athlete. Okay. Oh, great. And who would that be? Gee, now I'm, now I'm just, I'm just paralyzed. Well, that's, I mean, that's a much harder question. <laughs> who would be a good yeah. dinner conversationalist from that, you know, that person? Uh, I don't know. Shaq. Oh. <laughs> be fun. Yeah, Shaq would be fun. I, I'm amazed like when you like, like all of those professionals and just kind of would love to hear about their lives, but just also, you know, they have such great memories about their plays and different pieces. It always amazes me whenever you, you can hear. And I know Shaq has talked about some of those old time. Oh, yeah, that play there and different pieces. So that'd be fantastic. Uh, next speed round question. If your local liquor store happens to be out of your favorite Japanese whiskey. Is it worth driving across town to get it? Or should you just stay at the local liquor store and just get your second favorite? Honestly, you should just stay at the liquor store. Just just pick up some <laughs> pick up pick up some makers. You know, it, in, in in a blind taste test, you're probably not gonna be able to tell. <laughs> so good. And it's and it's there, right? It's it's, it's there, it's, it's there. Available. It's there. Be kind to the environment. Yeah, you yeah. <laughs> roughing your liver. And just, just kinda... Okay, all right. Last of the speed round questions here. So, would you bet me that a male college student who was left alone in a room with no distractions except for an electric shock machine in the corner that creates a painful shock for them um, would or would not shock themselves if left alone in that room for fifteen minutes? Ah, yes, yes. A lovely experiment by uh, Dan Gilbert and his colleagues. And the answer is yes. And this has two things. One thing is people hate being left alone with nothing to do. Take away their phones, put them in a room. They're miserable. And you tell them they can't fall asleep and they're just miserable. <laughs> and then put a shock machine in front of them and they say, yeah, hook me up. <laughs> so, yes. We shouldn't be laughing. This is not funny. I know, but but this is this I think is really interesting because they said they'd pay money not to be shocked in in a, a different component of that that study. So, yeah, this is a fascinating piece, which I think gets into a little bit about the book that you've just written, The Sweet Spot, which is well. Can you tell us what the thesis for for your book is? Yeah, it's it, it, it's about a question I've been interested in a very long time, which is why do we choose suffering? Mm. And um. When I started the book, I was very interested in the idea that we choose suffering because suffering can give us pleasure. 
and uh, you know, and 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 I and I think that that's true. I think a lot of uh, a lot of the suffering that we choose, like uh, hot baths and BDSM and scary movies, really, in some paradoxical sense, although they give us rise to anxiety and stress and pain, they lead to enjoyment. And that was what the book started off. And then as I worked on it, I it, the scope broadened, and I became very interested in the idea of suffering can scratch itches other than pleasure, like mm. meaning and morality. And so I, I came to the idea that that is just part of a, a full, rich life. And that's what the book is about. Was there a certain amount of uh, of sort of me-search, you know, I mean, in this, like, was there some catalyst inside of you that was like, wait a minute, this is this is happening or I'm observing this in my life. And so I think I want to dig deeper into this. A little bit. You know, I find myself, like a lot of people, when I'm engrossed in a project and, you know, what, what Csikszentmihalyi calls flow, where you're mm. really into it, time goes by. And it's not fun in any simple sense. You're not, you're not cracking up at a funny TV show. You're not goofing around. You're not drunk. You're not high. It's intense and it's difficult, but it's deeply satisfying. And same with physical pursuits. I'm, I'm, I'm not a jock, but, you know, but when... When I run or do weights or whatever, I don't like it at some level, but at another level, it's rewarding. And um, and certainly, I, I enjoy movies and fictions that that upset me, but yeah. I enjoy them. And so there's such a paradox here. And yeah, so a lot of it comes from my own experiences and experiences from people I know. So I find it kind of, I don't know, I, I, I ended up reading the first two chapters, the the preface and the chapter one of the book while I was in a sauna, as, as you talk <laughs> So yeah. I have a sauna here that I, I, I do re- relatively regularly, this idea of, as you said, sauna in and of itself. I'm in a, you know, 160, 170 degree yeah. little room that is not necessarily pleasurable by any means, but but I do it. And there's this element that you talk about um, within the book, which is this benign machoism, right? And that that kind of concept. Could you talk a little bit about that? And I would assume that the idea of a of a sauna falls within that, but just help us understand that concept a little bit more. It does. So I'm not the first to wrestle with these problems. They're, they're age old puzzles, and you can see why they're puzzles. It, it's it's not if you told me you spend you know some time eating a delicious meal or hanging out with friends or whatever, I say oh, that makes sense. That's what that's you know biological sense and social sense, but but in in a really hot room, willingly. <laughs> and so the psychologist that, that I draw the most inspiration from is Paul Rosen, a brilliant mm. scholar from University of Pennsylvania. And he coined the term benign masochism. And benign masochism, it's masochism. You choose your own pain and suffering. And it's also benign. So I mentioned in my book, The World Sauna Competition, yeah, where people r- took it way, way too far, and one of them died, and somebody ended up in yeah. a coma. Yeah, not really um, benign. <laughs> that's not benign at all. And some some people do do horrible things to their own bodies and choose to suffer. And I think some of that is, you know, mental illness and things gone crazy. But I'm interested in everyday suffering. You know, the the little things, like you have a sprained ankle, so you press on your foot a bit. You, you rub your tongue on a sore tooth. You uh, Somebody says you want to see something disgusting, and you say, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I do. <laughs> and this is not this is not minor. People, you know, there are billions of dollars spent on pleasures that are aversive and painful. And so it's a real a real mystery and I think and I think by exploring the mystery, A, you learn something about something which is interesting. But B, I think it tells you something more general about human nature, about pleasure, about what people like, what people want. I was reminded of Khalil Gibran's comment about how the more sorrow carves into your life, the more room there is for joy. And along with that, you know, the 
suffering being central to the Jewish tradition and one, one of the four noble truths in Buddhism. What is it that about these sort of great philosophies or philosophers have we missed? Like, because it seems like the the whole you know, kind of taking Jeremy Bentham to just like the yeah. extreme has kind of been more common in modern times. What? How, how do we lose sight of these uh, of this important mystery? I think we have missed something. I think that there's something, by the way, where there, there, there's a very important distinction which I, I want us to talk about between chosen suffering, which is what my book is about, and unchosen suffering. And unchosen suffering, when bad stuff happens to you, that's more of a mixed bag. And, and it, that's more complicated. I'm kind of skeptical about people who say this inevitably leads to growth or positivity. But mm. you're right. We've missed out on the value of suffering. And I think it's because for reasons I don't fully understand, there's kind of an, an ideology about people, which is, I think, cynical and also mistaken, which is all we want is pleasure. We're mm. just after pleasure. And, and anytime you give me a counterexample, I tell you, people, you must enjoy it. You must secretly enjoy it. My other research before embarking on this project is, was on morality and why we want to do good things. And the objection that honestly annoys me the most is people say, oh, nobody wants to be good. Nobody cares about other people. We just care about ourselves. And I say, really? Have you ever watched somebody take care of their kid? Have you ever watched somebody <laughs> sacrifice to help somebody else? Say, ah, they get something out of it, I'm sure. And I can't, I don't know why we, we've ended up with that ideology, but it's a dumb one. And I think we, we can do better. And I think some of the great uh, traditions of the past have done better. It's interesting when you talk about this, because again, thinking about modern day society with all of the conveniences that we have, all of the, the methods for taking some of that suffering away, the elements that we have that it's just a, a click of a button or a simple, you know, trip to, to the store and we can have whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want it. And it is part of that. And again, this may be something that, that you may not have an opinion on, but is, is part of that the, the marketing side of things? Because we think that people want to have that pleasure and that, you know, let's remove all of the obstacles out of the way. And if we can do that, um, that's just going to sell more of our product and more of our different pieces of that? Or is that is there a larger piece there? I think what you're saying is part of it. It's one of the interesting things about psychology, which makes psych psychology so difficult, is that we often have mistaken ideas about what mm -hmm. we want. So here's an example from Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote the book Flow, which is, he says, everybody thinks they don't like work and they love vacations. You know, and, you know, you, 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 nobody negotiates for less vacation time. You know, you, you think that's going to be fun. But there's some studies showing that for some jobs, not all jobs, some jobs are, are awful, but for some jobs, people actually are a lot happier when they're at work and kind of bored and anxious when they're on vacation. And But that could be true, and we don't know it. I think people tend to overestimate how much material possessions make them happy. I don't think that they are useless. I think that, that and sometimes psychologists go overboard in trying to show how unintuitive things, so I'll tell you. Money does make people happy and stuff yeah. to some extent makes people happy. But I think people overestimate how much that that is the case and underestimate how much, for instance, being with friends and socializing is important. And we certainly underestimate how much suffering, hard work, struggle, and difficulty is important. And, and here's one other reason why this is such such a problem, which is to get into a zone where you're experiencing the sort of good sort of suffering. It's often difficult. 
it's often just easy for me to sit on the sofa and watch Netflix rather than going for a run. You have to, it's right. It's, it's easier for me to sit on the sofa rather than learning a new language or doing something or, or, you know, engaging in complicated, difficult activity. But once you make that step in the end, I think your life is ultimately better. Yeah. You talked about motivational pluralism and, and this sounds like you're kind of uh, leading into that. Could you, could you spend a minute telling our listeners a, a little bit about motivational pluralism? So, um, philosophers and psychologists, just about everybody has some gut theory as to what drives us. And a lot of these theories are one word theories. Yeah. Pleasure. Pleasure is a big one. But some people I think will say purpose and some people will say goodness and some people will say meaning, whatever that is. And we could talk about that. And I reject one word summaries. I think that we have evolved through natural selection and then have been shaped by culture and society to want many things. We really do want pleasure when it's really hot outside and you're parched. You really want a cool drink. It feels great. We want sex. We want food. We want pleasure. But we also want um, to do good things. We want to be good people. We want to see justice done. And we also want purposeful, meaningful activities. And so we, we want more than one thing. And that's the pluralism part. And then there's the question, which is a very difficult question. And it has no sort of determinate answer as to how to balance these different uh, needs. I think, I think everybody would, you know, if you think about it, some balance is important. A life of no pleasure seems pretty awful, but a life of only pleasure is also in its own way kind of awful. And so, the, but the pluralism is a theory of what we want. I think that ties in with what you've talked about in the book. It's that sweet spot. And I think, and correct me if I'm mistaken here, but that sweet spot is finding that, that kind of balance between those three and how to mix those into your life. And so, with that, what, A, is that correct? And B, if, if so, you know, what is that sweet spot? Where, where is the exact right mixture of those? It is correct, though I, I never say it. I don't think I ever explain why I gave, <laughs> I gave the book the title, in part because, as, as often, the title, I think, happened after the book was written. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the question what it is, it would be really cool if I was to say it's a 30% pleasure, 35% morality, <laughs> and, you know, 10% yeah, love. I didn't and, think that yeah. would be the case. So, but, but yeah. please, if it is, the, let us know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be, a, that, that's my, my next book will give you the numbers. You know, you buy this, <laughs> you send me a receipt that you bought the book, I'll give you the numbers. <laughs> but what, what I would argue is that for meaning, for purpose, for morality, it's not zero. Mm. And and here I disagree with a lot of my colleagues, and here I disagree with a lot of people in that I want to sort of remind people, and you're right, it's, it's an ancient, to some extent ancient wisdom, to some extent it's intuitive, which is a good life involves struggle and pain and anxiety and difficulty. And again, for two reasons. One reason is this is actually a cool way to get pleasure, like you and your sauna. And the mm. other reason is, and I think maybe this is a bit deeper, is we want to have meaningful pursuits in our lives yeah. and to have a meaningful pursuit, everything from, I don't know, from doing a podcast to raising a child to training for a marathon, it got to hurt. It got to involve the possibility of loss and difficulty and struggle. If it didn't, if it was a snap of fingers easy, if you knew it was going to work, it wouldn't be worthwhile anymore. Yeah. I saw some research recently that said, that sort of claimed, well, the, the standard definitions of leading a good life was that you had to have one of two things, a hedonic or subjective well-being or a eudaimonia. Like if, if you had sort of the combination of those two, that that would 
lead to a good life. And the authors of this paper came back and said, well, no, we also need psychological richness. We need, you know, curiosity and we need something more than just that. And, and i I kind of feel like you're saying, actually, it's a lot bigger than that, that it's more than just a three-legged stool. It's a, a multi, it's a, it's complexity. Is, is yeah. that fair? It is. And in fact, the, the work you're mentioning by, I think, Oishi and Westgate, yeah, on yeah. psychological diversity is a lovely mm-hmm. word. Came out after after my book was published, and I wish I wish I had I was able to talk about it. But it's yet another thing, which is we want diversity and variety. The psychologist Michael Norton has this term emo diversity, which is that when it comes to our emotions, you ask people what emotions they want to experience, and they don't just say only the good ones. They recognize that a fulfilling life involves some experience of frustration, maybe of sadness, anger disappointment. If you don't have that, you're missing out. And so you're right. If you ask me how many motivations do we have, I wouldn't be able to answer you in part because it's not clear how to slice them. So we're talking now about pleasure if it's one thing, but certainly the pleasure of a good meal and the pleasure of sex and the pleasure of playing with one's children are just totally distinct. And there are people who who focus on one at the expense of others and just everybody has has their own balance. But Whatever the answer is, it, it's going to be a number that's a lot bigger than one. Yeah. Hmm. I just have to confess that when we got the, you know, the tip about, you know, we should, uh, we should interview Paul Bloom and his book is called The Sweet Spot and it's, you know, it's the, the pleasures of suffering and in search of meaning. It's like, oh, I'm not going to look forward to this. This is not going to be fun. <laughs> I'm just going to be totally honest with you. And then I get through the first chapter and I was so hooked I was, again, because I think I have been drugged by the zeitgeist of pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Just go for what makes you happy, you know, avoid pain at all costs. And I really think that it's a, a wonderful, wonderfully written book. And, and the theme of, hey, there is this mix. There's this diversity was really, was really great. And, and one of those themes is that certain types of chosen suffering can be sources of pleasure. And I was wondering if you could just elaborate on that a, a bit, because I think that that's a really wonderful thing to call out, that chosen suffering can absolutely have a direct impact on our on our pleasures. Right. So so the, the question you want to ask now, and this is what I, I, I begin the book with, is, well, how? I mean, how, would, how could suffering help pleasure? And there are different answers to this. There's, again, there's not a single answer, but one answer has to do with balance. Mm. So our experiences are very rarely absolute. They're always relative to something else. The temperature that water feels like is determined by the temperature of the air and the temperature that you're used to. There's ex- there's experiments where they give you uh, pain, painful shocks or painful pressures, and how painful it is depends on what you're expecting and what you're you're comparing it to. If you um if things stay the same for too long, we stop perceiving them. They just turn to nothing. There's a very clever visual study where. Our eyes are constantly in motion, so we're constantly getting a smear of colors and light. If you put cameras on somebody's eyes, focus, sort of look, sorry, if you put screens that sort of looking at screens, and the screens are built so that they'll always give you a static image, it goes poof, it disappears. Without change, you don't perceive anything. Now, pleasure and pain work on this too. So one, not the only one, but one answer to your question is that sometimes we set up negative experiences because it primes us for positive ones later on. Mm-hmm. We go for the real long hike because it feels so good when we get back and we take a take a, a long bath and we relax and we rest. We feel satisfied of ourselves. We put hot curry into our mouths 
because once you drink the beer <laughs> afterwards, that's so satisfying. And if so, so we, we set ourselves up with struggles versus payoff at the end. And I give the example of, of revenge flicks and movies, which always have this structure. So I, I'm sure at least one of you seen John Wick. At the beginning, you know, they, all this bad stuff happens. They kill his dog, and it's so sad. And But then, you know, that sets up his, his violent revenge, which is so satisfying. And you don't understand a movie if you say, hey, here's an idea. What if we took out the first half and just said the second half? Well, yeah. you, you can't enjoy the second half unless you have the first half. And that's, I think, one of the explanations for how pain can give pleasure. But there's others. There's the experience of mastery. There's uh, signaling how tough you are or how vulnerable you are. There's the loss of self. So sometimes difficult, painful experiences take you out of your own head. And in fact, mm. this is one theory of BDSM, which is, which is it removes from you your identity in a certain way. And, you know, I think there's real value in that too. You talked about Jinsma High already and flow and, and, and those p- pieces of that. And some of that losing yourself, and I don't think it's necessarily tied exactly what you were just talking about with that, but it, help us understand how flow interacts with what you're you're talking about here and how that comes into play. So flow is very interesting. It's part of what psychologists have called effort paradox. The mm. effort paradox is in everyday life, we normally do things the easiest way. If I'm going to walk to my door, I walk to my door. I don't loop around the house twice, you know? Um, and, and so, so in a million ways, you just try to minimize the work, except when you don't, except when, <laughs> when, when, when sometimes you're messing around, I, you know, I'm with my partner and, you know, she has some M&Ms and she's about to hand me. And I said, no, no, I lean my head back with my mouth open. She has to throw it into my mouth and I have to catch it. Yeah. Right? Because, because let's make it difficult. Let's, uh, you know, I do crossword puzzles and I'm not the greatest crossword puzzle doer in the world, but I set up the hard, I do the hard ones. So I struggle. And flow is, is a wonderful exploration of that idea. So, so what Csikszentmihalyi, and I know I always struggle with his name, but um, yeah, so, so, do, so do I. So between us, Tim's yeah. the only one that can probably pronounce it. So we'll, we'll, we'll have, we'll have Tim jump in and, and, and do a voiceover whenever I try to voiceover at, the, at those yeah, points. <laughs> um, but, but he introduced the concept of flow and flow is experiences of immersion. You know, you know you're in an experience of flow if afterwards you don't realize how much time has gone by. If you missed a meal, if you know, if you missed appointments, if if time just went to nothing. And he argues that flow is a case where the experiences are difficult. They're hard. They engage you. Now, it has to be a sort of intermediate range, a, a sweet spot. If it's too easy, you get bored. You know, you're not going to get in flow where I have to go through a puzzle and circle all the numbers or something. That's boring. It also can't be too hard. If it's too hard, I'm anxious. I give up. I'm frustrated. It has to be just the right space. And in this book, Flow, which is a book, one of these, there's another book by Viktor Frankl, but, but Flow yeah. inspired me as I wrote this. He tells these stories of these athletes and these musicians and these scholars who live their lives in states of flow. These are great lives indeed. Okay, so so Paul, where does flow differentiate from the sweet spot or where do flow and the sweet spot divide? I think flow's a very good example of how the experiences that we often benefit from the most and enjoy and want to replicate are not easy, involve struggle mm-hmm. and difficulty. Now, a flow experience is not terrible. You're not putting nails into yourself. You're not even running a marathon, but it's sort of an experience that we often find ourselves in and we aspire to. 
And it just illustrates the point that difficulty and struggle can be what we want. And yeah. so that's 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 one theme. Now, the argument of suffering applies on, on many levels. So we're talking now as sort of day-to-day things, but there's also suffering and difficulty in the context of larger projects. So I talk a lot about having children and raising a family, having a difficult and demanding job. And these aren't like moment-to-moment flow, necessarily flow-like experiences, but they involve levels of difficulty and struggle, which again, I think scratch a certain itch. They are what we are motivated to do. You uh, brought up the the story of George Mallory and, and Everest, and you talk about the, the uh, because it's their comment. You also just, I don't know, maybe this is ironic, but uh, you, you, you mentioned George Lowenstein, I think in the meaning uh, chapter quite a bit. And George is a big climber. He likes you know, those outdoor experiences. And I'm wondering if, if when we think about people who are driven to do these kinds of things, is there, if you put all the effort into the climb, but don't make it to the summit, can there still be pleasure? Can you, is it, is it still possible for the climber to derive some, some reward and some sense of pleasure out of the effort that's been dedicated to a project that doesn't come to its ideal fruition. Absolutely. So Lowenstein, George Lowenstein wrote as this wonderful article, and you're right, I talk a lot about it in my meaning chapter, looking at, at endurance mountain climbers, you know, not, mm-hmm. not some Sunday hikers, but people who, uh, who end up, they get down and they're missing some fingers and toes, and some of them don't, don't make it down at all. He says, why in the world would anybody ever do this? And he says, well, maybe at some level it's fun, but it's not. He looks at the diaries of people and, and they say, oh, this is miserable. I'm hungry all the time. I'm thirsty. I have a blinding headache. There's no camaraderie. People hate each other. And it's just terrible. And then they, and they, they spend an enormous amount of money. They risk their lives to do it. And then they go down. And then, and then months later, they're doing it again. He says, what yeah. in the world is up with that? And he has all of these theories of it. He says, maybe, and, and some of them, I think some of them are true. It's, 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 it, you don't have to just choose one. Like To some extent, it's social signaling. You know, I, um, my younger son's uh, a boulder rock climber, and mm. I was uh, in a gym with him once, and somebody, uh, she had just climbed Everest, and she came into the gym, and everyone, like, what oh, is it cluster? And there, there's something to that. But I don't think that's the main thing, and neither does Lowenstein. I think we like to set difficult goals, difficult, important goals, and try to achieve them. And I would think that achieving goals are great, but I don't think that's really what it's about. It's about the effort to do it. And so I do think that somebody who tried and failed, they'll be disappointed in their failure, but it would be, um, you know, I, I think it's still a satisfying pursuit. Is it that sense of mastery that you are, yeah. are achieving this uh, element of perfection in, in what you're doing? Is that part of that whole component there? I think it's absolutely part of the component. I don't think it's the whole thing. Because okay. if I was to stand, if I was to um, do the project of walking around my office, you know, a hundred thousand times, that would require <laughs> me to be in pretty good shape and a lot of mastery and dedication, self control. But it, it would be kind of foolish. It wouldn't. It wouldn't seem like a meaningful precision, like a dumb pursuit. So you have to have a goal, which is acknowledged that this is an important goal, and maybe it's acknowledged because it's a moral goal, like raising a kid is important. Uh, if I had a charity that helped thousands of people, that's important, or climbing a mountain. There's a community of people, and a lot of people think this is significant. And so mm-hmm. you have to have a significant goal. But definitely mastery is then part of the story. Mm-hmm. 
So you brought up George Lowenstein, and we actually interviewed him on the show a, a while ago, and he talked about his research into boredom, which I thought was really interesting given our initial speed round question with boredom and various different things. And he talked about boredom for him is actually painful, that that <laughs> when he is bored, he feels physical pain with that boredom. And so, you know, for him, he sees boredom as a motivator, as this, this, this you know, moving beyond getting to... Uh, different elements. And so is, you know, there's a part of that that is pain. And I think you also talk in the book about just some of the, you know, we we don't live in this world where boredom is acceptable anymore. Yeah. We don't take those times. So talk a little bit about that from your perspective. There's a few things that are unpleasant that we don't tend to pursue. Mm-hmm. One of them is um, is nausea. Mm. For some reason, you know, people, sharp pain is something, but but nausea uh, no, people people tend to reject that. I think it's because nausea lingers, so it's hard to get a contrast effect. And another's boredom. Now there are people who will try for and there, there's there's never a generalization without exceptions. And I'm sure there's people who nurture the feeling of boredom as a way to sort of signal <laughs> how tough they are. But boredom boredom is a toughie, and and it's hard to get pleasure in boredom. Could I tell you about a George Lowenstein study? I love. Yes. Yes. We would. We love George. So yeah. Yes. It is. He asked people. I'm going to get this slightly wrong, as I always do, but this is roughly the idea. He asked people. He asked people to imagine they get to kiss their favorite movie star on the lips, consensually and freely, and this is and this is great. And then he asked, "When would you want to do it?" Now, uh-huh. Economics 101 says right away. Let me pop in some breath mints and do it right now because, <laughs> because, you know, there's temporal discounting and everything. You better get $100 now than $100 later. Economics 101 says right away. Psychology 101 says right away. It's, it's hard to have self-control, blah, 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 blah. You know, we always want to do things right now. You know, I want a marshmallow. I'd rather have one marshmallow now than two marshmallows <laughs> later. So Lowenstein asked a question and people say, two days. What's up with that? And it turns out that people are complicated. So there's the kiss, but there's also anticipation of the kiss. So you yeah. want to let me give me a couple of days to look forward to it. And I just love that. I just love that because it shows it shows that that you know that psych 101 and economics 101 are just often full of it. And people are just just a lot, <laughs> a lot more complicated. God, isn't that the truth? <laughs> we and we we have no idea. You know, we just, we're just so clueless about, you can't read the label from inside the jar. Nicely put. Yeah. It's just so crazy. (laughs) You talk about um, a a couple of things that I thought was really interesting. This pain, then pleasure response versus the pleasure, then pain response. Which do we tend to prefer? uh, What's the difference between those? Right. So, so um, one way of putting it is imagine two movies, two versions of the Shawshank Redemption, a very good movie. In yep. one in one movie, the movie we've actually see, this guy is unjustly sent to prison for twenty years, is miserable, miserable time, then escapes and spends the rest of his life in this wonderful, uh, I think, Mexican paradise, you know, warm in the feeling of love and his friendships and justice. Now imagine the flip bizarro version where he starts off in this Mexican paradise, then he spends twenty years in prison. Which would you want to see? Well, you want to see. You want to see the first one. You want, you want to get your pain, then your pleasure. And there, there's a lot of evidence. What, what, kind of, um, what kind of job do you want? You want a job that pays you for the first 10 years a lot, then pays you a little, or vice versa. You want your salary to go up, not down, even, even if the total amount is the same. What kind of life do you want? 
when it gets better and better and better or worse and worse and worse? Well, we, we want to get, um, we want to have an increase. We want to get things to get better and not worse. So we want pain and then pleasure. And I think that, um, that this explains a lot of what goes on when we choose pain. Because often we choose pain to set the stage for subsequent uh, pleasure. Mm. And nobody chooses, you know, and so we don't choose to have the pain at the end. Which even goes into, again, actually, this was the Kahneman study that you brought about uh, the, the amount of pain in a procedure. And then you lessen that pain at the end, getting in some of the, you know, the, the peak end rule that they talk about. But this idea that we'll suffer more pain if we can have a better experience of it at the end, which I thought was fascinating. It's an absolutely amazing set of studies. This is um, Danny Kahneman and, and his colleagues. Part of the work that, that won him the Nobel Prize, and, and deservedly yep. so. And, and the, his question is, when you think back on an experience, how do you judge the quality of an experience? And you can imagine a simple theory says, well, you add up all the pleasure and all the pain. It turns out is entirely wrong. It turns out, for one thing, there's what he calls duration neglect, where you know, two hours of a long, of a boring plane flight feels later, just like four hours or like eight hours, even though the actual suffering was multiplied by two or by four. And then there's the real weird part, which is we tend to remember experiences by their endings and their peaks. Is that ending that leads to what you're talking about? I'll just say what you said, but he did this both in a laboratory where he induced pain and also with real world colonoscopy. Yeah, colonoscopies where this was at a time where it was actually actually considerably more painful than they are now. And his discovery is we would, if you imagine two cases, one is it's really painful and then it stops. And then the second one is it's really painful for the same amount of time. And then you get a bunch of mild pain. Which would you prefer? And you may think that's the dumbest question in the world. You don't even ask that as one of your original (laughs) questions. How about the one with less pain? Turns out that people remember the one with more pain than mild pain at the end as better than the first yeah. one because you're remembering the ending. The first one ended on a very bad note and then the second one ends on a less bad note so you remember the second one better. And it's just, if, if you ever want a demonstration, I think people, I think people we, over, we underestimate how rational we are. We're often extremely rational. But this is nuts. It's like you go to a dentist <laughs> and it's the world's worst experience. He says, okay, you could go now. You say, hey, doc, can you poke me a little bit? Just give me some mild pain so I remember it better. This is crazy. <laughs> uh, it, it is. And, and I love that about the human condition as well. I, I, I say I. I'm, I'm speaking for Kurt and me. I know we, we, we both share that <laughs> because we find it fascinating. I've got to... I just got to say that there aren't a lot of books that we read that have mentions to Alice Cooper, John Cougar Mellencamp, Eminem, Adele, Paul McCartney, The Proclaimers. Like, where is music in your life? I got to just say, you got a lot of access to musical stuff here that was perfectly on point, by the way. Well, thank you. Illustrations. I am an incredibly undisciplined uh, consumer of music, which is, I just tend to listen to whatever's on the radio, whatever's on, on streaming services. And I also have this tremendous advantage over many of my readers, which is I'm old. And so I, <laughs> so I, you know, so I, I, I was not that old, but, but, you know, Billy Joel, Alice Cooper, um, you know, Pink Floyd, they just, they just were my environment. And, you know, this, so I tend to pick up these things and, and often, you know, a good lyric is captures a re- real insights. I like Eminem saying, you know, lose yourself. The Proclaimers, besides being the best uh, karaoke 
uh, song you could ever imagine is, is, is also a proclamation of love and, uh, and, and so on. Yeah, I would walk 500 miles is is a pretty fantastic proclamation of love. Yes, I'm and sorry. then 500 more, and then 500 just, more. You know, yeah, not not just 500, and then 500. Of course, more. as I point so, out, he's just saying it, and in fact, they call him the proclaimers. Maybe maybe it's a it's a fake signal. You know, <laughs> see, see, you never actually did any walking. So, you, but you also in the book you talk about sad songs and and why we enjoy sad songs. What again from that perspective you think about this and it's it's this idea of why do we want to listen to music that is makes us to some degree potentially tear up and, yeah. and have those emotions of sadness. Um, what's you know what are some of the thoughts around that? So there's a specific answer, and then there's a more general answer. The specific answer, which applies in some cases, is certain sad songs. I think you have like Adele, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it someone like you? Is that the example? Like you? Um, they make you feel like you're not alone. Yeah, you know, you make you feel that your heartbreak is not is not unique to you. You're not, you, you know, you have other people gone through this too, and that's somewhat reassuring. But there's a more general answer, which is I think we need to get out of the habit of thinking that sadness and fear and anger are bad things to experience. They really aren't. What we associate them with bad things because they're typically prompted by bad things. So, you know, so if uh, a rabid dog is chasing me and I'm terrified, it's an awful experience. But the awfulness isn't the fear. The awfulness is the worry about getting bitten by the dog. And mm. so, so often sadness is, an, is associated with bad things because bad things make you sad. But if you could feel sad without the bad thing, that could be kind of pleasant. You just experience the sadness and, and, and do it. You know, the better examples are fear. But for fear, you know, you have horror movies and so on. And, but you also have, have, certainly you have sad movies. And as long as you know it's just a movie or just a song, you could experience it. You could feel it. I said in my book at one point in an earlier draft that there are no angry, there are no angry music. But uh, a then lab manager of mine, uh, Alexa Saki, pointed out that a lot of heavy metal can get you angry. It's meant to rile up anger. And that's another example. Yeah, it is. There is angry music out there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and, and Tim and I have had this conversation before because I am much more of the angry music uh, connoisseur than Tim is. So. That's always a my son tells me there's a, there's a genre called screamo. <laughs> that, that I'm not sure. Of, <laughs> okay. but it doesn't yeah. surprise me. It, it does not surprise me. So if you uh, if you were to be stranded on a desert island for a year and you could only take three artists work with you, three musical artists, not not painters, but but mus- musicians with you, whose work would you would you take along? Oh my gosh! I wish you had sent me an email these questions in advance. Um, oh, sorry. Was- <laughs> did, did it get lost? Did it get caught in my spam filter? No. Um, I would. You know, I like Joan Armatrading. I like David Bowie. I, this may get me canceled, but I like Billy Joel. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, as you know, I like, I like that sort of, you know, schmaltzy, uh, old time music. Well, Joan Armatrading is not schmaltzy. Joan, Joan Armatrading is not schmaltzy. That's true. She's got some balls. Holy cow. I know, but I'm, but it's, it's the Billy Joel I'm, I'm excusing oh. myself for. Um, um, the, the music I listen, I listen to music all the time, but it's typically, um, some sort of techno or movie soundtrack while I work. I can't, I can't listen to words while I work. And, but I also can't work in silence. Do you have an, any huh. favorite techno soundtracks that you like? Or is it just sort of like random? Like, do you just have a... It's, it's often random. Um, 
I like this is not this is not techno, but I like a, a violin string quartet. It's one of those um, those groups that what they do is they take contemporary songs and they play them on classical using classical instruments mm. and classical this is John styles. John Levy's favorite. <laughs> no. yeah. 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 Well, I will have to say, Paul, that uh, so I have a 15 year old son, and it is really fun sometimes to hear him when he's in his room and he's singing loudly with his headphones <laughs> on, and he's just going at. And he's singing Billy Joel piano. Oh my man, gosh! And with his friends, so you're not. I don't think you're going to get canceled. I think this is the. It's it's, it's that resurgence. It's come you have, It's come back. You are in the. You're you're cool. You you're wait in, long enough. It's like these old timey names, <laughs> which is you have this old timey name, and then you know when I like it, yeah. and then all of a sudden everyone's named Herb. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's it's very very true. I think there's something oh, there. Okay, so. that's very that's the best news I've heard in a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we can add shed a little bit of joy into into your world here today with with that. So. Yeah, and with that, we just want to say thank you so much for your time, your thoughts on this. We we've loved the book. Uh, again, way, way more than we than, than I, I originally expected. And so so thanks for being a guest on Behavioral Groups today, Paul. Thank you so much. It's been a huge amount of fun. You guys have been great. Oh, thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Paul, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our miserable, suffering brains. Oh, but they're happy, happy brains, even in that misery and suffering, even maybe because of the misery and suffering, Tim. That is the sweet spot, right? That, that we end up actually finding real joy in our life because of, and in part, you know, through the suffering and pain. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I know going into this interview you were a little bit skeptical you had you had a you were like i remember having conversations as we were reading the book and you weren't always so bought into this concept of suffering and yeah. and different things where i was like going oh this makes perfect sense i love yes yes put those pins and needles in me come on well it took me a while to get there because I'd been reading like Jeremy Bentham, who was one of the 18th century philosophers who really helped kind of form the motivational and ethical philosophy of hedonism. Okay. You are a hedonistic kind of guy, huh? I really thought that I was, yeah. right? Uh, I kind of see this idea of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. And by the way, this idea is not new. Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, of course, is very well known for it. But lots of people have talked about this and written about it through the centuries. But... What happened in the reading of this book was that I realized it's not just about pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. Okay. I was wrong Ooh. right there. Yeah. Uh, because Mark this day, folks, Mark this day, <laughs> Tim admitted well, he was wrong. God, I hope that this happens more frequently than having <laughs> to write it down. But I actually started reflecting on how, how much effort sometimes uh, painful effort I put into work, relationships, hobbies. I do, uh, when we have snow in the area that we live in on New Year's Eve, I like to go out and do a snow angel after uh, hanging out in the hot tub. So my body's all warm from the hot tub and then you go out and do a snow angel, you know, and it's really cold and it's really painful. It feels like a hundred thousand daggers stabbing you. You know this, you do the sauna lake thing. Yeah. But, and then getting back into the, into the hot tub, I was like, oh, 
it was all worth it. Yeah. And so when I reflected on it, I don't pursue everything that is pleasurable. I intentionally pursue things that are going to be painful, that yeah. cause me agony in order to actually experience more pleasure when it's done. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because there is that element too. So we sauna and then we go jump in the cold lake. And the vast majority of people that jump in is like, oh, they jump in and they go, oh, and then they hop out really quick. And I have become over the years, yes, as I do yeah. this, I tend to stay in. And I actually, there is, there's that pain. There's that sharp, cold pain that your body feels when you first enter in. But there's something about that pain that over the years I've learned to come to appreciate and to a certain degree even enjoy. And that it's that part of this. Yeah. Part of it is I know how good it's going to feel the, you know, when right. I get out and get back in and even that night going to sleep and your body just feels so relaxed. But that's after you're actually getting into the experience in the moment. In the moment when I'm feeling that pain because I'm going yeah. this and there's something about that. I think if it's part of it is the knowing what is going to come afterwards. But part mm -hmm. of it is just then relishing that moment for what it is and relishing the idea that this is this is something that I can I can take. It's not it's to that point of that benign uh, masochism, right? It, where it's not too much. I'm not going to get hypothermia and die, but it's also, it's not pleasant. It isn't a pleasant experience. And yet I am getting pleasure from it somehow. I think that's perfect. So you are a benign masochist. <laughs> Neat, and I am too. I am too. Well, there we go. We got it. There. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I'm glad that we, we brought it up. I also just want to emphasize something that you you said with regard to this idea that you're doing something that's you know painful but not really hurting you you know you're not going to die of a heart attack because of this and there's a difference paul points out between unchosen suffering and chosen suffering yeah and 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 it's it's more likely that we're going to actually going to seek growth experiences from the chosen suffering but that's not always true Right. Well, like you said, it's the, the training for the marathon, right? That's a growth. You are getting stronger. You're you're able to accomplish more. Yeah, you're going through the pain. It's the hours and hours that you spend researching a book. And, you know, it's not always a pleasant thing and it's late and it's tired, but you know you got to do it in different pieces. But at the end, you've grown, you've, you've gotten better, you've gotten more intelligent, you've gotten stronger, different pieces of all of that. I think that's true. Um, but uh, this also reminds me, I was listening to Barry Scott Kaufman on the psychology podcast, right? Which mm -hmm. is a good podcast for people who listen to the show. Very much so. Go yeah. out and listen to, to some of his stuff. And he had interviewed, I think um, I'm going to pronounce his name right or wrong, Richard Tedeschi. Yeah, R R Richard Tedeschi. Yeah, yeah and he, he was talking about post-traumatic growth. And he's done a lot of research on post-traumatic growth. So this idea... We have uh, lots of people know about post-traumatic stress disorders, right? PSTD, this idea that, you know, you have something horrible happen to you and, and from that you have these, you know, stress and various different things. And, and, and Richard isn't saying that that doesn't happen, but he also says there's lots of research out there that shows that when people have these horrible things happen to them, losing limbs, you know, losing a loved one, having their financial, you know, ruined, being being around in a, in a hostage situation and, and your person you're with getting shot in front of you, all of these things, 
it can have a really negative impact, but they can also lead to growth. And, and this yeah. idea that after these traumatic events, that many people find that there's a growth, that they have they've come to appreciate life more, or they, they have been motivated to start a foundation or to do good in the world or to reassess what it means to be alive and really savoring every moment of the day as opposed to just blindly going through your day without really thinking about it. So yeah. that being said, yes, there is this benign masochism as we talk about where you choose your own pain and your own suffering, but it's benign. But there can be growth in these other ways as well. And and yeah. I think that'd be not what Paul was talking about, but I thought it was interesting. So yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. I also was really inspired by motivational pluralism. What is that, Tim? God, how cool is that? It's so much bigger than just this context matters thing. What? Yeah, Nothing I, is bigger than context matters. Yes, this I feel like this for me, this be, this became bigger than just context matters. Oh my God. No, that's your thing. I, context God, matters I is your thing. It has been, but Paul, honestly, Paul Bloom's book really inspired me to new ideas and uh, and new thought processes. And it, when he said at one point, you know, we need to get out of the habit of thinking that sadness and fear and anger are bad things to experience, that we could be motivated by those things. And what, what <laughs> it's, it's kind of weird, but it actually made me think about a conversation we had about climate change and about how there's always this message of like, for instance, you know, eat, eat more plant-based diets. And you've got some people who are going to be like, I want to eat more plants because I just like the, the taste of it. And you've got other people who might say, well, I'm going to eat more plants because I want to save the planet, mm -hmm. you know? And you might have other people that are going to say, I want to eat more plants because like whenever I eat beef, it, I just get sick. Yeah. Or I don't like the idea of killing animals or, you know, or my, my cousin says it's cool. So I like my cousin. So <laughs> exactly. Motivational pluralism you know, exists. Ah. So let's, let's embrace it and bring it into the forefront. That's kind of my thought. What I like about this concept of, of motivational pluralism is the idea that there isn't one motivation, that any action that we have, not any, that most actions that we have are motivated by multiple sources and that those sources aren't always as apparent as we like to think. And this is really, I think, fascinating, particularly as we think about when we work with companies around their incentive programs, around their reward and recognition programs, around all of those facets, right? This idea that, oh, if we just offer the right incentive. I'm laughing because, yeah, this is exactly it. Like right. the, the sales manager has this, the right, the one, the the right incentive, yeah. And, and it's not because there are multiple, going back to your context matters, context comes into play, but this idea that there is multitudes of aspects that play into a salesperson's motivation need to be taken into account. And yes, an incentive plan, a well-done, well-designed incentive plan is great. But what about what about the idea of being intrinsically motivated to support the team? That this is something that you find pleasant in doing when you have these different parameters set up that you want to identify with the self-esteem of being the top salesperson. You know, those are all different aspects of motivation. Right. that get into this. And so, you know, there, there's different facets to this. Well, by way of example, I remember uh, shortly after 9-11 uh, happened, 
many uh, sales leaders uh, came to me and said, we need to make sure that our charitable donations are first and foremost in the award offering. That as people, as the salespeople earn points, they should be able to exchange those points for charitable donations. And I was like, I don't know if people will actually do that. But then we surveyed them and about a quarter of the salespeople said, I will definitely be motivated by this. This is really important. Yeah. And the interesting thing was that what we saw was that less than 1% of all the points went to charitable <laughs> donations. That they ended up being kind of selfish in the end. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't a motivational factor. Yes. That it didn't actually engage them in a way that wouldn't have engaged them previously. Uh, so I, I, I agree. We, we can have lots of different motivations. And I think it's also time that we kind of get rid of the this, you know, we've got to get beyond our, our fundamental attribution error. You know, if, if we, we have to. <laughs> good luck with that, Tim. Oh, know, good luck with that. Recognize that there are many different motivations that when I'm driving down the, the highway and I'm automatically assuming that all the faster drivers are idiots and all the slower drivers are morons. They're just different. They have different <laughs> motivations. Right? Yeah, they have the the brand new baby on board. I don't know about you, but man, I was driving awful slow when I brought my when I brought my son home for the first time. <laughs> right, right? Right. Those are different pieces that when we take into consideration that we need to think about that. And even just when we're talking with somebody, particularly in a work situation, and you, we tend to assume that people's motivations are very similar to what our motivations are. Absolutely. Of and the course. fact of the matter is, and I think this is one of the key things from Paul's book, we don't understand our own motivations, right? Yes. yes. I mean, going back to the the hotel in Florida versus the ice, you know, hotel, which, which is going to give us more life satisfaction, right? Probably staying yeah. at the ice hotel in Quebec. Now, that's yeah. not necessarily for, true for everybody, but you have to go through some some suffering. Yeah. You know, it's not as pleasant. The more pleasant experience as we would take it from a hedonistic perspective is probably the nice warm beach in Florida. Right. But that might not deliver the longest life satisfaction story. That might not actually enrich us. And people don't fully and and granted that one, you know, more people picked that when we when it was said in the the research that Paul did, but this idea that we fully understand all of our motivations, I think, is just bullshit. Yeah. I don't understand my own. And I study this. You know, you don't understand yeah. all the motivations. And so. But I do understand your motivations. Well, of course. I like ice cream. <laughs> See, well, and this is the fallacy, right? That I think, I, I think, well, I know what I know what's motivating him. That's why he did that. Yeah. We don't know that. We have yeah. no idea. It's a good. So yes, let's let's just cancel the fundamental attribution here. <laughs> well, I, I'd like us to not have it, so we don't have to experience it all the time. I suppose. I, I don't know what what else struck you in this in this conversation. So there was this cool part about kind of this variety and diversity all in balance. This idea that recognizing, uh, I think Paul said this. He said, recognize that a fulfilling life involves some experience of frustration maybe of sadness, anger, disappointment. And if you don't have that, you're missing out. This idea that you're oh, yeah. missing out. If you don't have these sad, sometimes anger, disappointment, frustration, this idea of, uh, you know, without change, you won't perceive anything. Yeah, you know? yeah. We're, we're preparing to interview Dan Pink for his new book coming out about regret. 
Yeah. And, and this comes into that, this idea that, you know, regret isn't something that we don't, we, regret can actually be a powerful thing. You know, this yes. idea that we were sad, that we're angry, we're disappointed. It's part of life and, and we yeah. have to embrace that part. Well, and Paul also says expectations play a big role in this, right? That if we go into the ice hotel experience in Quebec, feeling like this is just going to be crap. I can't, I, this is going to be awful. Well, guess what? It's probably going to be awful. But if you go into it saying, this is going to contribute to my overall well-being, it might be uncomfortable for a couple of nights. However, it's going to be memorable. It's going to be something I get to talk about. I can do all this virtue signaling with it. It's going to make me cool on social media. I don't know. You know, there's a whole bunch you and of your virtual signaling. I know you are there. So that just reminds me, we just interviewed um, Ayelet Fishbach, right? And she talked about some of the research that she was doing about putting people in uncomfortable things and having the goal being being uncomfortable. Being, and when right. that was the goal people liked it better they they stayed yeah. with it longer they did better things with it this idea that you know your your workout your goal is to sweat and to feel some pain and when you sweat and feel that pain which could be seen as miserable you now enjoy it because you've achieved your goal that's a, which is an interesting switch on all of this oh my gosh this is thanks man i'm getting too excited gotta calm me down calm me down man <laughs> Well, it's pretty great stuff. Uh, the other things about variety and diversity that really struck me were like uh, uh, some of Dan Simon and Chris Shabris's early work. Oh, was, with, with with gorillas? Well, yeah, that. But <laughs> but but they did these other attentional blindness things where they they had a scene change in front of. It was a little video that yeah. played for like thirty seconds, and a couple of things changed. And you had to notice what changed. And it was very, very hard to see them change slowly. But then when you get to the end in the, the studies, you could review the very last frame, compare it to the very first frame. And when you're looking at these two things side by side, it's like, oh, obviously I could see what changed. Yeah. But when things change slowly, we tend not to notice it. And, and so one of the things that this, like the snow angel experience and the jump in the lake after the sauna thing, they're abrupt and yes. they are very noticeable and very memorable. And, and with, with that kind of change, we perceive things. It heightens our attention. I, I like that. Well, what is that? The corn sweet effect, right? When things that are moderately different appear the same if they're separated, but if you put them right next to each other, yeah, yeah. they're there, right? So yeah, yeah, like know, all of a sudden it's like becomes really obvious when you put them next to each it, other. Which is goes to joint evaluation versus, you know, solo or or uh, individual, what is evaluation. individual evaluation. What is that in, in sequence evaluation? You know, all of those factors come into play. And yeah. I think to that degree, when we look back on our life, and this is what I think Paul is talking about here, is this idea that if our life was just roses and unicorns and lollipops, <laughs> the appreciation for those things wouldn't be the same. And so right. actually having those moments of disappointment and frustration and pain lend itself to making those rainbows and roses and lollipops stand out more, be more whatever they are. 
and yeah. provide us with this contrast that we can go, yes, this is what I enjoy, as opposed to if that was all the time. You know, it's like everybody talks, oh, go, you should go live in San Diego. It's 78 and sunny every day. And I go, yeah, but I, I wouldn't appreciate it. You know, I would, I'd be, yeah, you know, living in Minnesota where today it's negative 19 degrees when I woke up today. Not Fahrenheit. wind chill factor, Fahrenheit, negative 19 Fahrenheit. So for yeah. Celsius, all you international folks, that's really, really damn cold, right? That's almost negative 30 Celsius. Minus 30. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Celsius, yeah. So think about that. Uh, but that that makes me appreciate those summer days, those spring days so much more because yeah. I've lived through this. There we go. That's that's why I live here. And, no, it's not. You, <laughs> it's, it's not why. It's oh, not I know. Why, I know. My wife's from here. That's why I live here. There you go. That's why you live here. But while I was reading the book, it reminded me of the prophet Khalil Gibran's book, The Prophet, and in it he says that the sorrow in the prophet there's this exchange of of asking the sort of the the prophet, the wise one, about these issues, and someone says, "Well, tell us about sorrow," and the prophet says, "the the deeper that sorrow carves into your life, the more room there is for joy." Oh, and I love that, right? Because yeah. it does. It's it's like it's carving out space for more joy, and so I I think I need to be more attentive to that, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I, li- I have absolutely do that in my life, but I'm not doing it maybe to the degree that I could. Okay. What else? What else did you want to talk about? You know, we talked a little bit about flow. I don't think we have to really get into this, but just this idea that, you know, some of these miserable suffering experiences actually become flow experiences because we're at that point where the effort is, you know, where we're at that we have the skill and the effort to do it or the the skill and the motivation to do it. And it's just there and we're getting there and we're doing things and different aspects of it. So I thought that was cool. So I completely agree. I think it's the flow and the sweet spot sort of exist in very similar veins. Yeah. I think yeah. that was that was really good. And how about how about the George Lowenstein experiment on on the kissing the favorite actor or actress? No, what was that? Tell me about that. Uh, <laughs> it's one of my it's one of my favorite uh, experiments that George did where he sets people up and says, okay, you're going to be able to have this consensual kiss with your favorite actor or actress. Okay. And totally above board. Everybody agrees. Your partner agrees. The actor or actress agrees. You know, it's all okay. good. When the question, well, well, we can debate who, right? But when <laughs> do you want to have that, that kiss? And the economists, of course, say now, just, you know, Temporal discounting, make it happen now. The psychologists, psychology one-on-one is like, have it now. Just get in there and do it. But that's not what people say. What what most people answer when they have this open-ended thing of when do I want to have that kiss? I want to anticipate it. Mm. Give me two days. Give me two days just to relish in the idea of looking forward to it. And then Give me that kiss because it's it's short enough that it's it's visceral that it's that it's it's coming up. It's this idea. Yeah, it's like you don't want to set that goal that's so far in the future because we forget about it in different pieces. But this reward that is there, and you can cherish that reward for those couple days. But you actually experience the pleasure of the anticipation. It goes back into um, Who's talking like when we think about uh, going on a trip, there's really three different pieces of that, right? There's the Mm -hmm. anticipation of the trip and 
what you imagine it to be and the planning and all that stuff that goes into it. There's the actual experience of the trip. And then there's the remembering of the trip. And all three of them can be very different in, in kind of the pleasure that we get out of them. I mean, and we, we've talked about this before. I've, I've gone on, you know, canoe trips up to the boundary waters where it's rainy and cold and miserable up there. And you know, the actual cry. event itself wasn't that pleasurable, but man, the memory of it. Wow. That's one of the best times. I mean, you, you remember those moments of, of connectivity and huddling underneath the tarp and reading Harry Potter with the family and, you know, all of those things. And I think that goes again to part of what Paul is talking about here is the way that our brain processes these hardships is it is a growth opportunity. It's this other aspect. And thinking about our life in totality, it would be less if we didn't have those pieces. So Yeah. Two things I want to say about that. First is I love the way you talk about the experience of the anticipating the actual experience itself and then the memory. Jonathan Mann in episode 207 did a great job of describing those three aspects of of the of the experience it was really cool and if listeners are interested in digging deeper in that that's really great and the second important thing to talk about there is what would you do kurt what would you do if you how long would you wait to have that kiss with your favorite actor or actress after I divorced my wife or she passed <laughs> no, away. No, no, it's totally consensual. <laughs> Everybody has agreed. I, yeah, but it's, I would feel bad. That's like, this break. that's my self-identity breaking my vow. No, I don't know. Probably, probably, I'd probably agree. I think it'd be two or three days. It'd be that kind of, maybe even a week. I might, I might yeah. forestall that for, for yeah. you know, make it on a, on a day where, you know, 5 p.m. on a Saturday, you know, the next upcoming Saturday or whatever that would be. Yeah, right? yeah. Maybe maybe even like sunset, you know, in a beautiful location. Yeah. Do, do we get to set the scene and everything? Context I mean, there, matters, Yeah, man. there you go. Oh, <laughs> but it's not as good as pluralism motivation. Right? Yeah, yeah. Motivational pluralism, absolutely. Okay. All right. So with that, right. um, that wraps up another episode of Behavioral Grooves. We appreciate you taking time to listen. And if you found this episode with Paul Bloom helpful or interesting or you took something out of it, please let us know. We want to be able to replicate that if we can. And we'd love to talk to you about other researchers or authors that you think would be good for the show. So let us know what that would be. And if you really did like it, share it, share it with somebody. And then, you know, drop us a line and connect with us on Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn, any of those different pieces. You know, another way to express sort of that you were liking it maybe is scroll down to the bottom of your mobile app, you know, through all the episodes that are listed. And and that's where the ratings and the review area is. You know, the ratings is just an opportunity to click on however many stars you think the podcast is worth. It's five. It's five. It's five. (laughs) Right. And if you want to review, you know, just scribble down a couple of sentences that would be really great. It does. It certainly does something for, for us. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But it also does something for others because it lets you know, lets them know that you liked behavioral grooves. Yeah. So we, we would really appreciate that. Yeah. And it only takes a few moments and Hey, maybe the pain you experience in writing the review <laughs> will help you feel great when we read the review in our next episode. How about uh, that? 
<laughs> I like it. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. And we hope that our conversation with Paul will help you this week as you go out and find your group. Mm-hmm.